Welcome back to another episode of Ecumenical. My name is Peter Holm, and today we're going to be talking about is this your last prayer? Have you said it already? I don't know. Before we get started, make sure if you like the content that I'm producing, make sure to uh, smash the like button, put your subscription down below, bring us comments, I'd be happy to answer them, help us to get more content to you all, and we just keep this channel going and find out what else is there about the Catholic faith that we don't know or we want to know more about, and we'll make more content on that, all right? Cool, good deal. Now, last prayer. So I'm bringing up this topic as Lent is getting closer and closer to ending, because of the fact we don't necessarily always contemplate our end. We always think about death and this long-term plan and sometime way down the road. Very few of us are struck with that moment where our life flashes before our eyes and we're about ready to, you know, expire, right? We don't necessarily think about it every morning when we get up, every night when we go to bed, etc. However, we're all going to die. Mortality is a real thing. Our life can be, and is, in all seriousness, very fragile, and it's over very rapidly, a blink of an eye compared to what eternity is like in terms of time. Now, the question I have, what if today you've already said the last prayer you were ever going to say, and you expire immediately after? And if you think about that prayer that you said, did you mean it with all of your heart? Did you contemplate and think deeply on that prayer? Did you give yourself over to God in that prayer, in that action, with your will, with your entire being, the fullness of your livelihood? Did you hand it to our divine creator, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Did you pronounce every word of that prayer clearly and thoughtfully in a manner worthy of Almighty God, the King of Kings? Did you set aside all your distractions when you said your prayers? Casting aside kind of your other duties for the moment, giving priority to God Himself, giving Him that time exclusively in that prayer. Is that what you did? And assuming you got to that point where you were reciting prayers in a, in a manner that's acceptable to God, did you do it in a way with the greatest possible spiritual gain? Were you in a state of grace? And then I have to go and take all of that that I just asked and flip it and say, and what if you didn't? What if the prayer needed more? What if it didn't have enough? What if there were massive problems in that? Do you know? And how would you respond? Because we need to ask whether or not we've done everything God wanted us to do. Because if we haven't, we end up in a potential conflict with God. We know from Scripture whether we're talking Old Testament or New Testament, that God does not hear the prayer of sinners when they are unrepentant. So if we're sitting in a situation where we have a vice, we have a sin, we continue to attach ourselves to that sin, we have no intention of actually fixing it. We don't want to get right with God because we're too attached to that sin. Well, then our problem builds from the same point of back to the prayer. How can that prayer be acceptable? So. When we look at John 9.31, John tells us God doesn't hear the prayer of sinners. When we look at Sirach, we know that praise is not seemly to God from the mouth of a sinner. Now, I want my prayers to be heard by God. 
all right? I make mistakes and I mess up all the time and I have to go to confession on a regular basis because of all the issues that I have and still trying to get this whole thing right. But I want my prayers to be heard by God still, right? And I bet you do too. So this problem is not ours alone. Even the fathers and the doctors of the church had their own struggles with sin. Even the apostles had their struggles with sin. The New Testament captures many of their sinful moments. Well, when we look at Paul specifically, so someone who wasn't necessarily attached to the apostles while Christ walked the earth, we do know that when he converted, he still was struggling with sin. Romans 7, he talks about his struggle, his fight with the flesh and all the sins that he was still prone to commit. We look at Romans 11 through, so Romans 11, verses 17 to 21, and he talks about his fear about whether or not he would be saved. So you're talking the man that was struck down from his horse, actually saw a vision of God, had the scales removed from his eyes, and brought into the company of the apostles to become a bishop of the church, to actually challenge Peter in Peter's own flawed execution of the Christian faith and what he was demanding of Christians. This is the book of Galatians, this is where that happened. This Paul, who we now look at in retrospect with all of his works collected and say, wow, what a great man and what a holy man. Well, how is this guy in fear of his salvation? He trembles because even after you and I can be grafted into the tree of life to be with Jesus Christ, he knew and told us we could still be cut off just like the natural branches and cast into the fire. Now, for anyone who doubts this, let's turn them over to Peter, who gave us the warning. And he says, For it had been better for them not to have known the way of justice than after they have known it, to turn back from that holy commandment which was delivered to them. That's a really hefty statement. He's sitting there warning us what happens to us if we turn on Jesus. And in the end, it's the fear of turning on Jesus like Judas turned. Now, after looking at 2 Peter 2.21, that's the verse we just read, let's add another one on there because I started to mention Judas, and this is key. When we look at the Gospel of John, because John addresses what happened with Judas as well, because John specifically is the Gospel where we know Judas was a thief and still was stealing from Christ and the Apostles in his capacity, like as after he had been appointed, after he had been converted, after he had done miracles, all these things, Judas ends up being overtaken by pride and greed to betray our Lord and ultimately is cast into hell for eternity. And it's John 17, 11 to 12 verses. So John 17 verses 11 to 12 is where Judas's damnation is mentioned in passing, but still damned nonetheless. And if you look at how Judas behaves at the end, Judas gets to the point where he is so confident in his state. He's so confident in his understanding of his relationship with God. He ends up committing suicide and is damned because he doesn't think God can fix it. Well, the problem then from our standpoint needs to be looking at, we really need to let God do the judging and not act like our 
perception of ourselves and our relationship with God trumps his understanding and his judgment, right? So when we look at 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And this is what I'm trying to get at. Even though any of us could feel confident in this moment and be like, oh yeah, I'm going to go to heaven. How do you know? Is there anything you have where you can tangibly hold on to this to prove that you are not in a state of sin, to prove that you are going to heaven, to prove that you're going to make it, to prove that your prayers have been heard, to prove that your relationship is solid, right? We know many men who are confident and in a state and relationship with God that they think is all solid, right? Or is it not that good? Are they overconfident? Are they being presumptuous? Because there is a sin of presumption. Now, I'm going to go to the Baltimore Catechism for this one here because it's the most succinct answer to this, this question. What is the sin of presumption? Maybe you haven't heard of it. The sin of presumption is a rash expectation of salvation without making proper use of necessary means to obtain it. What does that mean? Well, the answer, they're like, hey, if you decide you're going to put off confession, you decide you're going to delay amendment of your life and repentance for past sins, you're indifferent about the number of times you've yielded to temptations after we've yielded and broken resolutions to resist it. If you think you can avoid sin without avoiding its near occasion, which means you're walking into an ambush effectively, and we're relying too much on ourselves to fix our problems and our own judgments and our own path that we want to take versus actually submitting ourselves to Almighty God, and we then don't take the advice of our confessor, let alone maybe we don't even ask the confessor for his opinion as to how we should go and get out of this state that we've put ourselves in. If we don't want to work through all those issues, then in the end, we've actually gone down a road where we're just thinking, I'm good, I don't need to worry about it. And then going back to the first point here of we may be guilty of presumption if, say, we don't go to confession. Well, if you don't go ask forgiveness for a sin because you didn't think it was a sin or you didn't think it was that bad or everything was good and God knows I'm a good person, if that's how you look at all of it, then you've basically committed against the sin against the Holy Ghost because you said, well, I didn't sin, even though God's like, yes, you did. Well, if we're in that whole situation because presumption has overtaken us, what do you think God says to those people who die in a state of mortal sin? They were very presumptuous. They didn't know I got this. I'm always saved, man. I, I knew God was good, right? And so we're going to look at Matthew 7, verses 22 to 23, to see what Jesus tells us happens to those people who are presumptuous about their destination when they didn't actually get right with him. They thought they were cool, but he's like, let's see what he has to say. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and cast out devils in thy name and done many miracles in thy name? And then will I profess to them, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of evil. That is extremely heavy. That should send chills down your spine. This is how I feel when I read it. Because how many times have we said, I think we're okay. I think we're good. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Whatever, right? And we think of our prayers and go back and like, how many times have we said our prayers carelessly in a way where it needed more effort? It needed more refinement. It needed more focus. And we didn't give it because we're like, ah, it's fine. He knows that I meant it. He knows that I wanted to do this for him. Everything's fine. Well, what do we do if we want to get around all of those imperfections and all those flaws? Every time 
you know, I've gone and said a prayer too fast and I've mumbled it. I've jumbled the words. I've spaced out. I was thinking about something else as opposed to thinking about the subject matter at hand. What am I supposed to do? Well, let's look at what St. Louis de Montfort wrote about this. So in his Secret of the Rosary, great book, by the way, short book. Uh, he has a few notes I'm going to um, bring up right here, which I think will help. Quote, St. John Chrysostom says that we cannot be our master's disciples unless we pray as he did in the way that he showed us. So we've got to pray like Jesus, which means completely devoted to prayer, sincerely, patiently, thoughtfully, in a disciplined and temperate manner. What else does St. Louis de Montfort say? He says, quote, It is not much the length of a prayer as the fervor with which it is said, which pleases God and touches his heart. Another one, there's another quote here. Regarding the Our Father in particular, the Son of God has always glorified his Father by his works, and he came into the world to teach men to give glory to him. He showed men how to praise him by this prayer which he taught us with his own lips. It is our duty, therefore, to say it often with attention and in the same spirit as he composed it. That's a deep thought right there. <laughs> You're talking about getting into God's mindset, the mind of God, focusing on what God thought when that prayer came into his own divine mind. So when Jesus Christ said, you know what, this is what we're going to do to praise God the Father, you need to be in that same spirit with him when you recite it, knowing how it was when it was conceived and why God the Son found it so meaningful and why God the Father would also find it so meaningful that he taught us to pray it. That's huge, all right? Another one here from Louis de Montfort. Quote, we make as many acts of the noblest Christian virtues as we pronounce words when we recite this divine prayer attentively. So again, that was on the Our Father. And then lastly and most importantly here, Louis de Montfort, St. Louis de Montfort gives us this piece of wisdom. Quote, in order to pray well, it is not enough to give expression to our petitions by means that most excellent of all prayers, the rosary. But we also pray with great attention. For God listens more to the voice of the heart than that of the mouth. To be guilty of willful distractions during prayer would show a great lack of respect and reverence. It would make our rosaries unfruitful and make us guilty of sin. How can we expect God to listen to us if we ourselves do not pay attention to what we are saying? How can we expect him to be pleased if while in the presence of his tremendous majesty, we give into distractions like a child running after a butterfly? People who do that forfeit God's blessing, which is changed into a curse after having treated the things of God disrespectfully. Cursed be the one who does God's work negligently. He finishes right there. That was a verse from Jer uh, Jeremiah 48.10. Now, Louis de Montfort sees the value in prayer. All of the church doctors and the church fathers, and every teacher, everything about what we do even in the Bible, the scripture talks about prayer as being super important. Why? Because everything we're doing right now, right here in this moment, is supposed to be preparation for death. We are thinking about what it's going to be like for the divine judgment in the presence of our Lord, in the presence of all the apostles and the angels and saints. And they're looking at us while God and the apostles are judging us for what we have done on this earth. We are going to pray thinking about what death is going to be like and making sure we get everything aligned properly so we die well and go to heaven. We go to Mass in preparation for death. 
knowing that death is coming. We go to confession, knowing that our salvation is only possible if we're in a state of grace. And we know that only if we die to ourselves can we leave this life with any confidence, we reach heaven. Which means death is a critical component here, a critical consideration. And going back to the reflecting on prayer, what was your last prayer like that you said that you remember? Whether it was five minutes ago, five days ago, whatever it is. What was the quality of that prayer? And what was the quality of you, your soul, your mind, your body, in terms of tying it all together with that prayer? Did you do everything necessary so that you were dead to self and giving everything else that was there in that moment to God? And then is that how you're living your life so that your life is aligning to your prayers so in the end you're woven in super tightly to Jesus Christ and everything about his divinity? Because that's what we're trying to get to, right? His divinity. That's why we go to Mass and, and all the other stuff. So, if you and I want to get to heaven, we must decide to live and act as Christians, Catholics, in all that we do, knowing that this world is forsaken and filled with souls that need saving. It means we can focus our efforts toward our salvation and the salvation of others, bringing mercy and justice wherever it's due, because the mystical body of Christ helps us to receive his grace and take that grace to the world. That comes with a solid, not only the grace itself, not only the masses and the sacraments, doing everything according to the law of the church, but with a solid prayer life. We do this because we love God, because God prayed. We walk in his footsteps as John and Peter and everyone else says, follow Christ and do as he did. He taught us to pray, right? So let's pray the way he prays. And I'm not saying just the words. I'm saying in the spirit of God. So we take all of the prayers that come from the divine wisdom of the apostles and from the saints, from the doctors of the church. Anything we were given through that divine wisdom, we recite it and give back because that was God sharing something with us, this little you know, bit of this divinity. We can give it back in our prayer life. So if we want to be confident that our prayers have efficacy, we give everything we got. We go all in. You can't go halfway towards being Christian or halfway towards being a good person halfway towards being in a state of grace. It's got to be all in. So if we take the, ne the extra time necessary to go all in and get rightly ordered towards God, we can succeed. We can focus our prayers on God Almighty, free of distractions, setting time aside, sending a lot of focus and putting in the mental effort necessary to recite our prayers well. Only then can we have confidence in the efficaciousness of our prayers to know that we can get something out of this. We're making forward progress, knowing that we see a, a reflection in our behavior, in our mindset that is positive, that is virtuous, able to deal with the hardships of this life and not flip out and not lose it and not go off the rails and back into sinful behavior, sinful lifestyles, right? So we have an opportunity here to do something great and make our prayers meaningful. Is that what you want to do? And if you want to do it, then let's follow the guidance that has been set for us, talking about the fact that our salvation is dependent on prayer. We need a tight relationship with God to be saved. St. Louis de Montfort has been very helpful. If we take those quotes to heart, when we look at how valuable the Our Father is, how valuable and even, you know, the rosary is in, in all of its glory. So let's close with the words of St. Louis de Montfort here as we kind of walk out, consider this. Here's the quote. It is a prayer that has great merit because faith is the root 
foundation, and beginning of all Christian virtues, of all eternal virtues, and of all prayers that are pleasing to God. Anyone who comes to God must believe, and the greater his faith, the more merit his prayer will have, the more powerful it will be, and the more it will glorify God. So I implore you all to devote yourselves entirely to God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, to walk in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ, God and Savior, man and God, two natures. He tied everything together and gives us that same opportunity in the sacraments and prayer to do that with him. So I invite you all to join me in sound and sincere prayer to our Lord. So think about what we do and how we say our prayers and how we emulate the saints. So take the time to say your prayers. Say them a little more slowly. Say them a little more defined and clearly. Put the time and effort into your meditations. And if that means you change your setting, if that means you use paintings and stained glass and statues and pictures and books and, and crucifixes, whatever you do to pray and get your mind in the place you need it to be, get it there. And I invite you to do that with me so then together all of us can not only pray but help others, teach them how to do this as well, right? So if this video helped you, smash the like button, share the video out there, live as a Catholic, as a Christian, and let's get close to God. All right. I thank you all for spending time with here, you know, with me here today. Thank you for everything. As always, may God bless us, the Virgin protect us, and St. Joseph pray for us. All right. See you later. Have a good one.